Hi, Church of the Beloved. My name is Abe. I am the pastor for our Wicker Park campus, and I'm really glad that you've joined us today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of each month, we remember the extraordinary act of Christ on the cross through something we call communion. Last month, we did that virtually, and we're going to continue to do that together uh, as a church until we can meet again in person, which I hope is soon. So I'm going to ask you to take a moment, uh, gather the communion elements so that we can participate uh, in communion together at the end, after the sermon itself. So bread to represent Christ's body and a cup of juice or wine to represent Christ's blood. Now today I want to start by first thanking Kirsty for reading today's passage. And we are going to go into it, um, but the focus of today's message is actually going to be on Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The thing is, I couldn't, just couldn't ask anyone on our scripture reading team to read that at the start of our service because, not because I'm ashamed of the Bible, I don't think that we need to hide anything in the gospel, but instead it is because I want the opportunity to um, present the truth of the gospel in a winsome or appealing manner. We're instructed to do that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I'll tell you, had the passage that I want to focus on been read by itself before the sermon, without any context, I think it is quite possible that we would have lost a lot of people, that there would have been a lot of switching to another live stream, which... Honestly, it would have been okay as long as the gospel is being preached. Um, but the reason I wanted to focus on the first part of Exodus chapter 21 is because this particular passage, at best, is awkward. At worst, it's a passage that's going to potentially incite anger, maybe bitterness, to what some people have called the patriarchal, racist nature of Christianity. And, and I don't agree that with the latter, but I absolutely understand it. And these are real reactions to the passage, like the one I'm about to read. Let me read it to you so you can see what I'm talking about. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then this master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If, If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, 
he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. I have to wonder if anyone's still watching. Um, it's a hard passage. And I, and I came to this section in Exodus as I was doing my devotions and preparing after having spent time in the beauty of the Ten Commandments, after, after seeing the magnificence of God's character in the Decalogue. And then you read this. So the focus of today's message became pretty evident to me, at least what I thought God would want me to preach. One of our former pastors, Pastor Bryant, he used to love saying that we as pastors do not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. I agree. We, we as pastors, as leaders, we cannot have a no- monopoly on the truth of the gospel. So what I thought I wanted, and what I want to do today is this, in this message, I want to be practical. What I want to do is I want to show you, provide with you the strategies I use when it comes to how I read the Bible, especially awkward passages like this one. And then I'm going to show how I actually applied those strategies to this passage. And I do want to give a shout out to my pastor from San Francisco, Pastor Joey, from my old church in Sunset Church. Uh, um, It was actually listening to him and his sermon that inspired this idea. But let's do this. Let's, Let's go through these recommendations. And the first one I have when it comes to reading passages from Scripture, especially difficult ones like this, is going to be kind of obvious. It's simply pray. James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, the Bible is breathed by God. It is, it is God-inspired. The Bible is accessible to everyone. And access to the Bible, the truth of this God-breathed word, is readily available through its originator. You, you have access to the simple and mighty act of prayer. You have access to the inspiration of this entire book. And he promises to give generously. He, he won't make fun of you for not understanding. And I was thinking of examples. You know, it's like you had access to Robert Zemeckis. He, he made the movie Forrest Gump. And you could ask him, what really killed Jenny? Or, or maybe access to, to J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter novels. And, you know, was Dumbledore really gay? You know, we have access. And God promises he's going to provide us the wisdom if we just ask. But we're to ask with integrity, not with contrivance. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, Jesus is providing some instructions on the methodology of prayer before he provides an example of prayer, of how his disciples should pray. And in verse 5, it says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Praying in secret is absolutely awesome. It's great. Having those one-on-one time with God is is essential. But I want to focus on the heart behind how we are called to pray. That's what I want to consider from this passage because that's what I want to do right now. I usually start with prayer, but I want to give this preface this recommendation first. The, the first thing I recommend to do when you're dealing with reading scripture, especially difficult passages, is to come to God in prayer. 
Come to the one who sees you and who sees me fully. He sees us without any misunderstanding. He has no incorrect assumptions. And we come to him to plead for his wisdom. First recommendation is to pray, so let's do that now. Will you pray with me? Precious Father in heaven, I I know, I know that if if we ask anything according to your will, you'll hear our prayer. You'll answer our prayers. And so I and we all come to you now humbly and ask you, God, please provide each and every one of those here in this room and who are online with us now. Give us the wisdom you promise so that we might fully understand the truth you've given us through your scripture. Oh, precious son of God, I beg you to use the words that are uh, coming from me to be a conduit of your truth. Not, not my wishes or desires or my opinions, but your truth, God, yours alone. It may be your spirit that speaks through me now. I lift up this prayer to your ears, oh God, with a contrite spirit, knowing that you hear, for you are the one and only God. Amen. So how do you read the Bible, especially difficult passages? The first thing you got to do is pray. The second thing you have to consider is context. Because context is king. And I typically split context into two categories, biblical context and cultural context. So when I speak about biblical context, what I want folks to understand fully is this. This book, this Bible, is a unified story about God, about his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. It's, It's about God's creation, which includes humanity, and God's sometimes inexplicable but perfect plan to bring us home to him. It, it, it is a unified story, but, but we should not approach this like it's a single book. The Bible is a library. It has different genres, poems, songs, biographies, stories, case law. Just as a uh, metaphor, I'm, I'm a sci-fi fan. Uh, I'm a big fan of Star Wars. Honestly, anything that's sci-fi, I, I, I will probably consume it. My wife is as well. And for those of you who know Suzette or ever have the privilege of meeting my wife, know this. I did not introduce her to sci-fi. She was a nerd way before I met her. And she's happy to proclaim that from the mountaintop. Now, she will admit very readily that my level of appreciation is a little on the extra side, but do not take away her love for Star Wars or Star Trek or Star anything because she came by it all by herself. That was not me. Anyway, we jointly decided that we were going to... uh, Subscribe to Disney Plus because of a TV series called The Mandalorian. And uh, one of the things that if you ever have an opportunity to enjoy this series that you will notice is that every single episode is so different. Every episode is like its own genre of sci-fi. Because this series actually brings about five different directors, each with their own style. But all of them are presenting one story about Mando and Baby Yoda. And for those of you who are more serious devotees, the child, whatever. Yes, I am absolutely linking Star Wars to the Bible, just so you know. The Bible is a single unified story with multiple authors or directors using their personal voice, their available literary devices to tell a story, a single story that points to one truth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if we understand this bigger picture of the Bible and how 
These passages, every single passage, those that excite you, those that incite you, all of these truths point to a bigger picture, bigger truth. Then we can start looking at the entirety of Scripture with that lens. So practically speaking, that sometimes means we need to read more than one verse or more than one passage. Sometimes we have to read whole chapters, whole books, the entirety of the Bible to get the biblical context. Now, cultural context, on the other hand, is the act of considering the original or intended audience. Who was it for? Who was this written for? Because I'll tell you, we benefit. I benefit from Scripture. It is absolutely God's word provided to me so that I might know God. But it wasn't written for me. The gospel according to Exodus, what we've been calling it. It it wasn't written. It was written for the descendants of the first refugee nation. It wasn't even written for the redeemed slaves that were taken out of Egypt. It was written for their kids. It was written for the ones who would eventually follow Joshua and Caleb into a land of milk and honey. It was, it was written so that they wouldn't forget. Which is why some of the details that we kind of wish we had aren't there. Like, you know, the backstory on Zipporah and why did she throw a foreskin in Exodus chapter 4? Or who was the Egyptian pharaoh that was Moses' grandfather. Uh, we don't have his name. But these are things that the author didn't include because it wasn't important or wasn't relevant or, or maybe it was something that the intended audience actually already knew about. See, context is king. So understanding the biblical and the cultural context to more accurately comprehend and understand a passage, especially a difficult one like the one I just read, is so vital. So I want to apply some context to this passage. You see, from the end of chapter 20 through chapter 23, uh, it's known as the Book of the Covenant. And it was provided to this fledgling nation of Israel as case law. In other words, these were actual issues being brought before Moses. And these are the judgments that he gave with, as directed by God. In chapter 19, verse 7, Moses has now taken Jethro's advice to get some help when it comes to presiding over conflicts and disputes. Verse 7 says this, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Now, I'm not going to get into the details on why some theologians believe that chapter 19 is actually out of sequence and uh, applies to chapter 21. But regardless, this book of the covenant that was being read was, was set before the elders so that Moses could get the help he needed to delegate the resolution of conflicts that were coming. Moses was writing out the precedents that God had made clear to him so that others might be able to settle disputes. This is case law. By the way, the book of the covenant, which starts at the end of chapter 20 and ends in 23, it starts and ends with God, worshiping God, because there's no distinction in Israel between the sacred and the secular at the time, unlike today. But then the first issue that's addressed here in this case law, after acknowledging God, is slavery something that the Israelites had just escaped from. So if you consider the biblical and the cultural context here, we actually have to look at things like the term slave. Because in our modern culture, it has a lot of history, a lot of baggage that's unfair to ascribe to ancient Hebrew culture. 
Because slavery in Jewish antiquity was not racially motivated. It was not intended to be the subjugation of a specific people group. You know, it was created to, one, allow a means by which someone could get out of debt. Second was to pay restitution for theft. And the last, it was because they had no POW camps. So it's how they dealt with prisoners during war. The type of slavery that we're familiar with that was enacted upon our black, brown, and indigenous sisters and brothers, this was not even remotely acceptable or condoned by God. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. No excuse. So looking at the Bible as a single unified story, if you look at the entirety of it, you see that there is a presentation of regulations that reference slavery and polygamy like this passage does. But it's not a tacit approval of these things. What it is is an acknowledgement by God of the brokenness of humanity and our inability to live out the life God designed for us and he intended for us. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, it says this. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Because of the hardness of heart. God didn't want this. But because we are separated from God, humanity has this tendency tendency to pursue things like slavery, multiple, multiple sexual partners, divorce, and so on. But when you take the full scope of the story of the Bible, when you look at the entirety of it all, you see examples of how much God hates slavery. He doesn't condone it. But he meets us where we are, the reality of our lives today, and he starts to transform us from within. He's saying, okay, all right, fine. You can have slaves, but but only if they owe you money or they stole from you. You know what? They have rights, though. Verse 26 and 27 point out that if, if you hurt them, you need to let them go. You know, after six years, you have to also set them free. Oh, you know what? If, if you have a slave right before the year of Jubilee, then, then you need to let them go at the year of Jubilee, even if they haven't served their full term. That's from Leviticus, by the way. Then in Deuteronomy, it talks about, you know, when you set a slave free, you're not just setting them free. You're going to give them money, give them land, property. You're going to give them sheep because you want to make sure that they don't get into debt again. You know, honestly, I don't want people to have slaves. I want you to be siblings in the family of Christ together. That's what Paul wrote to Philemon, speaking about Onesimus. See, their example of God's subversion of humanity through the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. But by his grace, he starts where we are. And we can see that as we look at the entirety of the gospel of scripture. The next recommendation on how to read these types of awkward passages is don't do it alone. You know, let me say it differently. Don't only do it alone. Taking the time to spend with God one-on-one is absolutely a good thing. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says about Jesus, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Absolutely, do as Jesus did. 
Spend time one-on-one with God. Meditate on scripture. Pray to our dad in heaven. But then, come together. Because Christianity is not intended for you alone. Now it says, we're to go and make disciples. We're, we're, we're called to consider each other more significant. Because Christianity is not a solo act. It's an ensemble. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. It says this, until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 is one of my favorite passages. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, God's word is for a holy nation, not merely a holy person. God's word is for a royal priesthood, not merely a royal priest. The scripture is not just for you, it is for all of us. We're called to gather together so that we might, in humility, learn from each other together. So we do this by gathering to encourage uh, and by gathering without any unrelenting pride in our own prejudices or preconceptions. We come with an openness to the reality of God's truth, God's plan, God's design that we can realize together in community because together we learn of the nature of God through scripture, all of scripture. The passage that Kirsty read for us today is my concluding point. I want you to start diving into scripture with God through prayer. Dive into scripture considering the biblical and cultural context. Dive into scripture together so that we might together be encouraged and understand as the body of Christ the truth that's being presented to us. The last thing I want to tell you is that we are called to respond. And I'm using the term respond very intentionally here instead of apply the word of God. Not that we can't often find application on an individual level when it comes to reading scripture. But applying something typically presumes some sort of action. And sometimes the reading of scripture does not require action, but it does require a reaction. Moses gathered the people of Israel, God's firstborn. And in scripture it says that he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We don't need to seek to find some arbitrary action that we must commit to based on the passage. Sometimes a passage like this one that was read today, it just points to a God that loves us so much that it reminds us he came to us where we are as broken people separated from him because of our sinfulness, our sinful desire to put ourselves before our community, before our God, and through that start slowly transforming us from within. Sometimes the grace of God brings moments of instantaneous and miraculous transformation. You see that with Saul, who became Paul, on the road to Damascus, getting ready to murder more Christians, suddenly seeing Jesus and being struck blind. Miraculous, instantaneous. But sometimes the grace of God slowly transforms individuals. It plants seeds in their lives. It allows the Holy Spirit to start chipping away at hardened hearts. And he starts the slow transformation for the Hebrews 
in regards to their understanding of slavery. He set limits. He put restrictions. He prioritized love for the image bearers of God. He meticulously undermined the human culture so it could be replaced by a kingdom culture, a God culture. See, regardless of how God works, fast or slow, God works. And our call is to respond to that, whether it's in submission to God's truth, in obedience to his design, and or worship of his name, he calls us to respond. Now, I hope these recommendations will help you when, we cut, when you study scripture. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have time to actually dive into the verses that talk about women, which also bother me so much. I encourage you to do that, though. Dive into it. Consider a few tips as you read. Continue reading Exodus 21. Read Deuteronomy 15. Start with verse 12. You'll see how that particular case law actually gets expanded. And you have to consider the cultural context because what was likely being discussed here was Moses referring to women entering into arranged marriages. But my hope is that you and I can continue to devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture by first coming to God in prayer considering the context, gathering together, and finally responding to the truth that's revealed as a result.